slash and cast. Fiends to handle a whiskare presented by the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Our show discusses horror movies and the phobias they emphasize. We are at the start of a new month, and with that comes a new phobia. And throughout June, we are going to be highlighting Selenophobia and the fear of the moon. So, what better way to do that? Then by spotlighting some uh, some werewolf standouts over the course of the past couple of decades. And to help do that with me is a recurring guest heard my new co-host, Grindhouse Zombie. Zombie, thank you so much for being here. And uh, yeah, what a way to like kind of like kick things off because we have an absolute bonkers lineup for the month planned out. Oh, God, do we ever. Yeah, um... It's funny, the the list that we put together, there's actually one that I haven't seen, and that really surprised me. Um, I'm pretty sure you know which one it is. Um, but when we started talking about this, I mean, it's funny that for all the werewolf movies, The Howling was the first thing that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. And I know why, and I think I talked about this a little bit while we were watching last night. When I was a kid, I had parents that were kind of like, if you wanted to read a book, they were just kind of all for it. They didn't even bother to look at the cover, right? And I was at a bookstore one day, and I picked up The Howling, and I'm like, can I read this? And I think I was maybe 10, <laughs> maybe. And they're like, sure, go ahead. Yeah, well, and as I described in the chat last night, The Howling, the original book, is borderline an adult work of fiction. <laughs> um, it is... For what the movie is, uh, the movie doesn't actually stick that close to the book. There's a lot of uh, a lot of deviation from the original story, um, and it probably was something um, that I shouldn't have read when I was a kid. It, it, like I said last night, it made me understand lonely nights before I knew what lonely nights were. Um, <laughs> so, um, the story though is fantastic. Uh, the book and the movie being different, uh, definitely both are great. Um, it's a, this is a really great one to start with, and we've got a lot coming up in the next month i'm excited for it it's gonna be fun yeah absolutely and uh you know just doing a little bit of research on the franchise because this is one that i haven't really like deep dope into i know there are quite a few sequels uh but from what i was reading up on it seems like the the fourth movie was actually more faithful to the book um so i'll let the i'm sure at some point i'll go back and revisit the sequels because i think i've only seen the first and the second overall um, but I've also heard just very terrible things about the sequels, which, I mean, is true for the genre, really, uh, as a whole, just, uh, by and large, because uh, very few standout sequels, uh, you know, just in the genre in itself. But anyway, so just a couple of general podcast reminder, guys, uh, of course, you know, we are live streaming on kick every Tuesday night for our Twisted Tuesday watch party. Uh, that is every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time. That is what we are basically watching. Whatever movie we will be reviewing uh, that following day when we are live recording the show. And of course, our live recordings are Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Pacific time. 
And uh, usually the audio will be up either, you know, Wednesday night or Thursday morning on whatever podcatcher you guys use. And with that being said, as I mentioned, we have Selenophobia and the Fear of the Moon. And we are starting with The Howling, which was released in 1981. Uh, and then later on in the month, we have Dog Soldiers, Silver Bullet, and Werewolves Within, which I can only imagine is the one you haven't seen because it's a, a newer movie. Uh, two, it's also a video game update adaptation uh which is also uh kind of interesting but I, i'm really excited to revisit that one because i know i had a ton of fun with it on my first watch and that's one that i know we had seen on twisted tuesday uh a couple of years ago and you know seemed to have some pretty good fanfare but didn't really create like a whole ton of buzz like online within the community well and so to clarify, it's actually Dog Soldiers I haven't seen. Really? Um, yep. <laughs> Werewolves Within I have seen. And that is, it, it's one of those movies when you watch it, it's bonkers right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking to yourself, like, this probably isn't going to be very good. And it turns out it's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. I mean, when you have all these different characters, when you have the, the uh, girl from what is it? Was it the Verizon commercials? I think <laughs> that's who it was. You know, um, it was, uh, and I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't selling phones in those commercials. Um, but it's it's a great watch. It's hilarious. The story is super fun. It's it's one of those movies. I I hold it up to not quite the candle of, but close to movies like Deadstream, mm -hmm. movies that shouldn't be as good as they are, but turn out to be fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that one too. Absolutely. So we have The Howlin' Up First Tonight, which was one of three werewolf movies released in 1981. It was actually the first of the three uh, to hit theaters. We also had Wolfen, uh, which also came out in 1981, as well as An American Werewolf in London. And of course, there is uh, a little bit of a connection between Howlin' and American Werewolf in London, in particular to the special effects in the movies. Uh, and in regards to, like, Wolfen, uh, for those that haven't seen that one, that was basically what uh, led to us getting Predator Vision. Because uh, that was really, like, the first film to, like, actually go about doing that. And, uh, you know, that's what I've haven't seen in quite some time either that that was when i was kind of like flirting with uh maybe penciling in here but you know there's just so many movies that we could have picked for this particular month and uh you know I, I feel like we got a pretty healthy mix though so i wasn't too concerned if i you know overlook something well and werewolf movies throughout history are funny because they're one of the rare the rare i think genres of horror where you can get some pretty big names in them if you write the right story mm -hmm. you know um, I still think, I still think Silver Bullet is one of the greatest werewolf movies of all times. That's just me. I know a lot of people don't agree, but I also have a Stephen King fetish, so it kind of makes sense. But if you think about movies like Wolf, <clears throat> where you've got, I mean, Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer. I mean, yeah, it's like, come on. You know, I mean, that's uh, James Spader again, too. Um, you go back to the Underworld series where you've got Kate Beckinsale. I mean, these are big name people that are doing you know, movies about a person that turns into a dog. I mean, that's, it, it, it's not something that I think most of your A-list actors would be like, I'm on board for that. That sounds great. You know? So I think it's always been an interesting topic. I mean, you go all the way back to the, you know, to the, the classic movie monsters and the Wolfman. I mean, it, it has been around for 80 years, you know, and it's, it's a story that when it's told right, it's, it's really super compelling. And 
I think the one thing that the howling did was kind of tell it in a different, kind of in a different light. It made it more like it kind of com- combined werewolves and a cult mm-hmm. into the same thing, you know, and, and made it into uh, something that was, I think, for the early '80s when we're just starting to get into the satanic panic. You know, people have finally gotten smart and killed disco, at least almost, um, and. It, it it gave us, you know, a new thing to sort of be afraid of. And I think this movie does it really well. Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, obviously a lot of the focus or a lot of the attention drawn towards the movie was built around the special effects of the transformation. And, you know, Rick Baker initially uh, was slated to do the special effects and he left during the production uh, because he had another gig, uh, which ended up being an American werewolf in London. Uh, So basically what ended up happening was we had his assistant, uh, Rob Bowden, who was in charge of the makeup after that point. So, you know, when you're talking about like the two titular, uh, you know, werewolf movies, really of all time uh, that came out in the same year. Uh, you know, there are a lot of similarities into the actual transformation scene. Uh, but, you know, I, I think for the most part, you know, when I think of, you know, the Howland, you know, I, I always circle back to Joe Dante and knowing that, uh, you know, initially, uh, you know, we had a, a script and they kind of like went back on a little bit and he turned to uh, John Sales, who had he had worked with on Piranha uh, just a couple of years prior to that. Uh, you know, to kind of, like, give it a little bit more, like, lightheartedness, add in a little bit more humor to it so it wasn't as serious, which, uh, you know, from what you're saying, like, in regards to the book, uh, definitely a, a completely different tone in, in regards to, like, what we actually got in the end result of the movie. Uh, and then, of course, like, this was kind of like the... Uh, kind of like the the stepping stone for Joe Dante in regards to Warner Bros. reaching out to him in, in order to uh, direct Gremlins... Uh, and, you know, there's also kind of like a, a little Easter egg there when we see Eddie Quist's uh, trademark uh, smiley face on one of the refrigerators in, in Gremlin. So, you, you know, you kind of have that sort of connection between the two movies uh, yes, it's in the as phone, well. It's in the phone booth. Yep. It's in the phone booth. <laughs> Uh, I mean, outside of that, too, like we also had uh, some set pieces kind of getting reused as well. Uh, that was primarily through the art director, uh, Robert Burns, who uh, had previously worked on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, you know, you see a lot of the uh, furniture <laughs> and, you know, the the bone sculptures uh, kind of like sprinkled throughout uh, the Howlin' as well. Yeah. So, you know, you don't really need to have like an eagle eye for this. It is fairly noticeable, uh, you know, just for like an average horror fan out there. Oh, I think so, too. I mean, and really... The, I think the, the best horror tie-in to this whole thing. I mean, the the thing that really pulls things from, and let's be honest here, call it a hundred different movies, is probably our lead actress D. Wallace. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't, if you're a horror fan and you have no idea who D. Wallace is, take off your horror fan cap and you know, put on your jackass 3.0 hat because that's kind of who you are. I mean, you if you don't know who she is, you know nothing about horror, um, and the different bits of this movie, it's it, it's funny how she she plays most of the movie as almost um, a scared bunny rabbit, mm-hmm. sort of. I mean, she's just because she's supposed to be this this hard hitting, you know, kind of badass reporter, but she 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 comes through on the screen most of the time as just 
petrified most of the time um, or just oblivious like, oh, I didn't see that thing coming. Um, not that it doesn't speak to her skills and all the things that she's brought to horror, but it's interesting how they played her up. And then going back to the book, I mean, in the book, you just have a husband and wife that are stressed out and having relationship problems. And they just decide to go away for the weekend to this to this village called Drago. And they're doing the average things. They're doing their grocery shopping and whatever else. And, you know, how they meet Marsha and, and a lot of the other characters is, is very, very different in the book. It's, um, it's, I'll call it more organic. I think in, in the movie, they sort of give you this borderline hand-fisted meet and greet with, by the way, here's the whole fucking town. <laughs> and, 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 and would you like some pig off the pig roast? It, it's like, I just, it just, it kind of all happens in, in the book. It takes a lot longer to sort of meet all the characters and, you know, and it, to meet your crazy Ralph and all the other people that you kind of see in there. Um, so very different. But again, I think D. Wallace as our as our kind of linchpin of the whole movie just makes it great for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, th- there were definitely uh, some things that were adjusted based off of the shooting time of the movie, because this movie was shot, yeah, including reshoots in 28 days which is a, a really quick oh. turnaround by, by Hollywood standards. Uh, but, you know, there were times where, you know, due to time restraints, they just had to, uh, you know, make some adjustments, like using Joe Dante's office to uh, shoot, like, the final scene in particular in regards to, like, uh, you know, D's transformation towards the end, which is, you know, honestly just completely different from what we're used to seeing in all of these werewolf movies. So, that I mean, the ending in itself really made the Howland stand out. You know, as I was kind of like touching up on uh, when we, before we started the movie yesterday, you know, there there's always been a lot of attention on American werewolf in London, uh, a, a lot more so than the Howland, despite the fact that both of them were successes. And sure, like the Howland didn't make as much money or didn't have maybe as much fanfare. Uh, but for, you know, whatever reason, the Howland just kind of seemed to be uh, in the shadows or often overlooked. But, you know, over time, it's definitely grown more of a cult following. But I just always thought it was interesting that, you know, the community uh, has always just seemed to champion one of the two. You know, you're either in Camp B or you're in Camp B. And, you know, I know for me personally... You know, I definitely resonated a lot more with American Werewolf in London, but I always appreciated the Howland and just the the way that it took the story. Because, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're not just focusing on the transformation or the wolves. I really dug the approach that they took to, you know, using the cult, uh, you know, kind of like having like a basically like an entire colony uh, in, in this case. So, like, the whole retreat, like, summer therapy thing that they had going on, just kind of, like, being kind of like a red heron uh, to, like, introduce uh, potential new members to, you know, to the to the litter, so to speak, uh, was an absolute fantastic choice. Oh, no, I think so, too. And having the having that doctor sort of be kind of a self-help guy. And that's how they bait people in here. It's like, oh, you've got some problems. You're stressed out. Come to our colony. We can we can make everything better. I mean, they have a big section of uh, the very first part of the movie where the doctor is actually a guest on her news channel. And he's talking about um, the, the book that he wrote and how to, you know, regain your life and find focus and do all these other things like that. I mean, and theoretically, I suppose, you know, probably becoming a werewolf 
it probably isn't the worst thing. I'm not the worst thing to sharpen your focus on on things. Um, but it is crazy how they use the they use the cult aspect. <clears throat> so I between those two movies, like you talked about, um, I'm gonna say that I'm in I'm in Camp the Howling, mm-hmm. and and for uh, for a number of reasons. A, I believe it's a better movie. I do. Um, I think it's more entertaining. I think it tries to be less forcefully introspective. Um, and uh, American Werewolf in London is more, to me, the story is more about trying to figure out who you are. Mm-hmm. And for me, like, I have enough of that in my life, you know? So it's like, I, I, it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't resonate with me as a, as a signal in a movie. Like, I'm trying to figure out who I am. It's like, I, I, I fight with that shit enough. Why, why do I want to see a movie about it? Whereas, um, I think The Howling more does a better job of being, let's just say a being, not necessarily a person, right? But of going with your inner instincts and, and doing your innermost things. Because with The Howling, I mean... It, the backdrop of it is almost exclusively sex. That's mm-hmm. what it is. A, a being, just being a beast, right? And I think that to me is more, is is more telling and more something I can understand than more. Oh, who am I? What am I going to be? What am I going to do? I, I just, it, it's more about just giving into your baser instincts and just you know going for what's right in front of you, kind of like a wild animal. So I dig that. Yep, and, you know, fucking right by the campfire. I mean, where else are you going to do it? <laughs> or, you know, rolling around in the woods, uh, which, you know, might uh, leave a couple of scratches, and that's not included in any of the she-wolf marks that uh, are all over your back in this case. Uh, but, yeah, getting back to, like, the like the shoot time, as I mentioned, being 28 days, like, one of the other sequences uh, that kind of, like, aided into that was also when D. Wallace was in the uh, porn shop. <laughs> Which was like an actual store. So like during that entire scene, like she actually wasn't like acting as if she was discomforted by it. Like she actually felt <laughs> like she was out of her element uh, just being there, which just makes that scene in particular that much more uh, memorable, uh, <laughs> which is great. There's it's it's rare to see a movie, even a new movie now that you see a scene and it makes you feel yucky, like yucky, right? In this scene where you've got two guys with pantyhose over their head ripping the clothes off of a woman and effectively raping her, that makes you feel yucky. And uh, to know now that that was actually filmed in a in a peep-and-go, uh, that's uh, that just makes it even yuckier, so thank you for yeah. that. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that that's, pretty, that's pretty damn gross. Um, and it comes through. It comes through on the screen. You know, I remember reading, too, like, in regards to, like, the book, like, a lot of it dealt with, like, rape and, like, having a miscarriage. Um, yeah, that was kind of a, a big part of why they left town, mm-hmm. because they were trying to have a baby. That happened. Um, you know, the husband was feeling like the wife didn't want him anymore. She was feeling like he didn't want her anymore. So that was the thing is that they, just, they left town and they went out to, you know, a cabin in the country in a small town. And we're like, let's see if we can get things kind of kicked back off. But like I said, during their during their grocery shopping and all these other little seemingly mundane things that they were doing, the husband encounters Marsha for the first time and is just spellbound. And so after that, 
And as, like I said, depicted in the book are some pretty detailed and graphic scenes <laughs> of the things that he does to Marsha. And I, when I say detailed, I mean detailed. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, and it's, if you think about it, I mean, it's not, it's not that much different than, call it a midlife crisis or something like that, where, you know, you, you don't know which direction to turn next and whatever else. And I think it details it pretty well. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes you just need a little summer getaway to, uh, you know, rekindle the flame in, in some regards. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I, I, I always thought it was funny. Uh, you know, we, we kind of like have I'm not going to say we uh, people within our community have this running gag with Twisted Tuesday where uh, Jess in particular has like a tally board anytime like there's a brunette. <laughs> <laughs> and she's mm-hmm. like, "Whoa, T, don't fall, don't fall for this one so soon." I'm like, "It's not with every brunette." And uh, you know, you guys were just playing it off. But you know, I, I remember like obviously like the first time I saw this as you know like a, a teen. Like obviously like Marsha's stood out uh, for for obvious reasons because you know she is very beautiful in this movie. But it was also one of those scenes where. Uh, you know, she was very upset with, like, the end result because, like, she thought that, uh, you know, her bare chest was going to be more covered by the bonfire flames. And then, sure enough, uh, by, by the end, by the end of it, uh, not so much the case, uh, you know, you because you do see everything. Uh, so she oh, was yeah. pretty upset with that. Uh, and I, I know uh, D. Wallace was also having some issues with some of the scenes in regards to like later in the movie when we get to like the um, like the barn in regards to like the 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 bodies like not having any clothes on. So they ended up like covering them up a little bit as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it seems like they, they had an idea in mind. Um, but, you know, there there was a lot of discomfort in, in particular aspects of making this movie. Oh, I think you're right. But the reality is, as much as the movie deviates from the story of the book, it does a great job of keeping with the tone of the book. And the tone of the book is a certain level of hypersexuality. That's what it is. Being the beast. Um, and the book definitely covers that. And yeah, the story is different, um, but the tone of the movie is is very, very on par with the book. Um, and yeah, I can see, you know, they try to play D. Wallace off. I mean, if you speak about, say, the the blonde versus the brunette, right? There was a period of late 70s, early 80s horror where the blonde was the pure one. She was the virginal one, and the brunettes were effectively the devil. So mm-hmm. I guess I can kind of I can kind of see that. Apparently, that rings true in your life too. Interesting. <laughs> um, but it but I think it was very true back then. So I think that's a big piece of why D. Wallace, honestly kept getting the parts that she was getting because she has, she does have that all American look to her, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even at her age now, if you see her now, she still looks all American, but just like an all American, almost a grandma, you know, versus, versus back then. So it, it's not super surprising to me that they deviated from the story, but kept the tone because the tone is, it, it's hot blooded in both the book and the movie. And they try to keep your blood up the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the kill count in this movie, because obviously that's another uh, hot button topic anytime we're talking about the genre. Uh, and, you know, you know, 
early on, you know, we, we kind of got like a deer getting mauled. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, a lot of the kills, because it is a werewolf movie, comes through the use of silver bullets. And, uh, you know, anytime we go back to, uh, like, the bookstore, you know, I, I always laugh so hard because you know, we have Dick Miller, who, you know, we're used to seeing in a number of different Joe Dante films. Actually, quite a few of the actors uh, in The Howlin' also appear in other Joe Dante films. Yes. But, you know, it seems like for a, a bookstore in particular, they seem to have every sort of tie-in that you could possibly have. Oh, you need some Wolfsbane? Don't worry, we got that. Silver bullets? Oh, we, we got plenty. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't matter, like, what sort of subject you're looking for. They always, like, kind of have, like, those little knickknacks kind of sprinkled in here and there that you just wouldn't really expect to see in, like, that sort of shop, knowing that it's not really, like, a novelty shop. Yeah, absolutely. In the in the book, the character with the silver bullets actually goes to a place and has them made specially and pays a whole bunch of extra money to get them made versus, yeah, I just walked into the ammo shop and they just happened to have a box of silver bullets on the counter, you know. <laughs> And it's a it's a ten percent premium, no big deal. I'll buy those. Yeah, um, but yeah, I but I think that goes back to the the cult piece of it. And so with with the cult piece of it, a lot of that actually makes sense. You know that they just happen to have, like you said, wolf's band. There's all these things that you know, silver bullets laying around. If you if you think from the terms of the cult aspect of it, it actually makes a lot of sense. But it's just not <laughs> it's just not super realistic. Mm -hmm. um, but still fun though, still fun though. You know, Dennis Dennis Duggan as Chris when he has a when he has the rifle and there's a moment where he's like he starts shooting werewolves and he's like and everyone's like, Wait, what's happening? And he just has to say it out loud, silver bullets. It's like, <laughs> oh, really? No shit. I I've I've never seen a werewolf movie before. I had no idea. <laughs> Hey, I mean, some some people just need it absolutely spelled out for them in order to really get the point across. Uh, you know, write it on the wall. <laughs> well, I mean, and I suppose it was 30 some, almost maybe 40 years ago. So maybe, mm -hmm. maybe the lore wasn't quite what it is today. Cause I think you could, you could pass a single person on the street and say, what kills a werewolf? And that's exactly what would come to mind. So maybe, maybe back then it wasn't quite as obvious, but I, I just, I'm still a person that like, when I get just even if it's a nugget of the narrative spoon fed to me, I'm just like, you know what? I already ate. Okay. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't need it. Are you are you the same way too? Whenever it comes to like saying the name of the movie within the movie, <laughs> that's always a little frustrating. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and there's a lot of movies. Um, probably the worst offender to me, the worst offender is uh, Return of the Living Dead: Rave to the Grave. Mm -hmm. That is, that might be the worst offender. <laughs> I mean, the guy literally shouts it into a microphone. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, like, come on, guys. Um, yeah, I mean. Uh, if your movie's good enough, it's okay to blow yourself a little bit. But if you're just kind of the average horror movie, maybe knock it down a notch and just don't be quite so obvious. Um, at the same time, I'm not a movie director, and if you're given the opportunity, maybe you just do it because you're there. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just self-bastipatory in some regards, for sure. Uh, but yeah, getting back to Dee Wallace's character, you know, we have Karen White, who is, uh, you know, a news reporter for Channel 6. Uh, and, you know, she's currently kind of like practicing her investigative journalism. And, you know, early on, she agrees to meet up with this serial killer who is played by Robert Picardo, which uh, I'm pretty sure this was his film yeah. debut uh, in this case. 
Uh, and, you know, we're also, like, introduced to the station manager, uh, her, her husband, who is played by Christopher Stone. Uh, and, you know, we, we have, you know, the, uh, the, the porn shop scene in particular, and, you know, it, it kind of, like, deals with a lot of trauma with what happens, you know, we, we see, like, the, the blood seeping through, uh, like, the door, but, you know, we don't really have, like, a great idea of what happened, other than, like, obviously someone died, and, of course, we do, like, this whole angle, uh, where Karen is suffering from amnesia and can't remember anything that happened. So when she's going to, like, this group therapy, you know, we're slowly starting to learn a little bit more. Uh, but obviously, like, she's dealing with the aftermath. You know, she's waking up screaming, basically having uh, kind of like a dream sequence kind of, like, play out in her mind. Uh, and, you know, over the course of time, it, it, it doesn't get as severe um, but, you know, she's still having it because it does happen kind of like throughout the movie. Uh, and that's eventually when, you know, we end up going towards, you know, that remote uh, remote farmhouse known as the colony. And that's, you know, when we're introduced basically like to the entire village at that point in time. Yeah. And that's a piece that they take from the book, uh, her trauma and her trauma was their house was broken into and she was. If, it depends on how you how you read the implications in the book. She was either assaulted or somebody attempted to assault her in her own home, mm-hmm. which is why they kind of flee to the countryside in the first place. Now, I think it's definitely less implied in the movie, but I know when she goes to meet the infamous Eddie that she's been getting these phone calls from, and she meets him in that in the adult theater. Um, for the longest time, he will not let her turn around. She he he keeps her focused straight ahead and watching that movie, like I referred to earlier, with the guys with the pantyhose and the young lady who they're unceremoniously disrobing. Um, but then there is a point you can hear that his tone of voice changes and he starts to get a little growly, and he tells her to finally turn around. And when she does, all we do is get a little bit of kind of light bursted shots of him, so you can't mm-hmm. really see, but you can tell that. He's either one hell of a hippie or he's gotten significantly hairier <laughs> in the in that 30 seconds. But then she ends up with these like weird muddled screams where she can't really scream. Um, and when she finally does, the cops are at the front of the porn shop and they come running in. And then the one cop refers to the other one as quick draw because quick draw just shoots the hell out of the guy behind the door. And to your mm-hmm. point, falls down and then there's this blood pool but you don't get a lot more of what actually happened. You don't get a clear picture of what she saw, you know, that she was traumatized. And I think that's the trauma that they were giving her to build off this, this kind of story. Cause there isn't anything else super indicative in the movie of what her trauma might've been. You know, she's definitely trying to be an investigative journalist, but I don't know what it was that like got her in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then to your point, as she has this weird amnesia and she's remembering things and it's like a lot of what she remembers is, either that scene from the porno movie she was watching in the theater or just other scenes of people in various states of humpery as they're going around. And it's, it's the, it's, it's kind of odd, but at the same time, it's again, back to that, like being, being true to your instincts and being very, being very much a beast. Right. And just, so a lot of it ties right back to that. So it almost felt to me, at least as far as the movie's concerned, like she had some sort of a, almost like a mental connection to this cult where they were trying to draw her in. So then once she was referred by the doctor for some relaxation, um, boom, they find themselves at the colony. 
Yeah, all I kept thinking, though, like, when she's actually, like, watching the video, you know, he's probably like, I'm never gonna put myself in that situation where I'm basically tied down to the bed and, you know, gagged, in this case. Uh, like, with what movie they were watching. Uh, but yeah, and, you know, it just felt like, you know, Eddie's character just, uh, as a whole, like, in that scene, you know, not wanting her to turn around. Like, obviously, like, he, I don't want to say, like, he was abbing himself up to, like, actually make the transformation or, you know, do whatever... Um, but, you know, th part of me thinks, like, he didn't really want her to see, like, that other side of him, regardless of, like, who he actually was, knowing that, you know, he is a serial killer. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just very interesting to me that, you know, his trademark or, like, his uh, signal card, so to speak, was a smiley face. I, I, I didn't really understand, like, that sort of connection uh, between that and who he actually was. Well, and, and the whole smiley face connection, especially when it comes to serial killers, has been around since probably the late 60s. I know here in Minneapolis, we had a long stretch in the 90s and into the 2000s of people being found in rivers and things like that where there was some sort of a smiley face by them. Um, I, I personally think it was probably just happenstance, but it's also a piece of how a lore can get out of control mm -hmm. and just become part of the narrative, even though it probably has nothing to do with it. I mean, if you, I mean, because by that measure, you could go underneath a bridge and find the word fuck spray painted somewhere and go, <laughs> Oh no, we've got a fucking serial killer. It's like, it just doesn't, you know, it just really doesn't correlate, but mm -hmm. I, but it's been part of the lore for a long time. So in a sense, it kind of makes sense. And I always thought, honestly, I always thought once you find out later in the movie that our friend doc is, you know, if not the head, he's in the upper echelon of the werewolves. I think he's probably the titular head, but it's it's kind of hard to tell in there. Um, but knowing that, I almost think that Eddie was like the young werewolf who was like, uh, I mean, he's 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 what the young people are today, right? They want to talk. They want to express. They want to do all these things. But at the same time, I think he was a little bit bound by his by his pack of wolves. Mm -hmm. And so there was a piece to me that thinks he wanted to talk to her. And there was a piece of me that thinks he was sent there to kill her, you know, but he was fighting those two things and he didn't know really what to do. So when he had the opportunity, he didn't do it. And then when he finally sort of made his move, it was too late. And the cops got there and just shot the shit out of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one side was going to win regardless of uh, how, like how hard he was trying to fight it. Eventually, you know, the beast was going to come out one way or the other. Uh, but, like, in, in regards to, like, the first part of the movie, obviously, like, for, for me personally, like, the first act is definitely the strongest part of the movie for me. And a lot of that has to do with the scoring of the movie. You know, we had uh, Pino uh, Dinaggio, who did the score, who had worked uh, a lot with, like, Brian De Palma on, on his movies. Uh, and, you know, we, you talk about, like, the, the cinematography, you know, really giving the impression uh, that, you know, we're also watching, like, the De Palma movie as well. But there's just something about you know, the Howlin' for, like, a Joe Dante movie that just feels a little bit different because, like, the Howlin' has more of an edge compared to, like, what we're used to seeing from some of, uh, you know, Joe Dante's other movies, which also really helps make it stand out as well. Well, I think so. I think the, I think they try to put, they do an interesting thing with the violence in this movie where they put it almost in your face. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not quite, it's like they leave you as the fish and, and there's the lure and you're almost there and then they yank it out. So it, there's definitely violence, but 
a lot of it, at least until you get into the latter half of the movie, is not right in your face. It's kind of kept in the shadows. Um, you know, whatever's happening is... It, it, there's always, it, it's always a little bit dark. It's always a little bit like you sort of know what happened, but they didn't put it in your face. Um, and it's really not until the latter half where you start seeing the, all of the transformations, and especially, and again, back to American Werewolf in London, where somebody finally figured out if we pull the hair out backwards and then run the film in reverse, it looks really awesome, you know? Um, but, but I think they kept it really... They kept the violence under wrap and they used the first, definitely the first third to maybe half of the movie just to keep giving you little nuggets of lore. You know, we've got all the books that they go through. They review some old videos where they're talking about, you know, people in these various mental states and what they could be going through. And really, nobody really understood it. And they just, they build it and build it and build it. But then when, once you get past the second half or maybe even two thirds and the violence hits, it's it, it's it's right there. There's no missing it. You know, you know exactly what's happening, you know. Um, but then the other piece of this movie, too, is and the edge I think you're talking about is for 1981. OK, and I, from 85 to 90, I would give you that it was all it was all boobs and see through bras and scantily clad. It was all of that. Mm-hmm. So for 81, the, the the sexuality that they put through is definitely right there. I mean, that's probably the thing that's the most in your face to this movie. Yeah, and this also came out around the time where, you know, we did really have like the height day of slashers as well. So just to, to have werewolf movies uh, enter it in, I want to say like a drove because like there, there were three releases in 1981, as you know, we had mentioned um, but, you know, it, it was really nice to see, like, at that point, like, OK, we're, we're not just churning out slasher after slasher. We we can do different subgenres within horror uh, and we can captivate an audience. And while you know, I would say but between the three movies, they each had uh, varying success in regards to like their their box office run and how they did, uh, you know, when you look at the Howlin', you know, sure, it it made like around 18 million, but that was on like a $1.5 million budget. So this movie was extremely profitable uh, when you look at the margins, uh, which, you know, is great to see. And, you know, in the 80s, it was all about making the cheapest movie possible and making as much money as you possibly can. And, you know, for the most part, it was slashers that was really like raking in all of the money in the box office. But, uh, you know, regardless of that, the werewolf movies did fare pretty well. Oh, well, definitely. And back in that era, between having between having the Halloweens, between having the first Friday the 13th, well, the first and the second Friday the 13th, um, I think werewolves were sort of seeing, um, call it a creature feature, right? We're seeing something of a renaissance back then. Um, because of the, the proliferation of the slashers at the time, um, Good, bad, or otherwise, you know, I mean, all the movies that you had in the 80s, The Silent Night, Deadly Nights, My Bloody Valentine, all these things that were just out there and were just people killing other people. And the reality, at first, it was, a lot of it was very scary, but then I think something like like 81, where it brought back Wolfen, which is still an underrated movie, it really is. And and like you said, Predator Vision, definitely underrated. Um. But I think it's it's just cool how they were able to take some of this and turn it into... For me, The Howling has got a very compelling story. I love the characters. Um, 
I love to see what they're doing. Now it's not a it's it's not a pop it on and just casually watch it movie. It isn't. I think you, it's a movie that you need to pay attention to. If you don't pay attention, you're not gonna get the vibe because this movie has got a vibe. Um, so you know, don't 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 put it down and or don't put it on and think you're you're gonna be able to stare at your phone or play a game of Monopoly while you're doing it because you're because you're not gonna get it. It's gonna get lost on you. Um, but I'll say it again. I still think for me it's better than American Werewolf in London. Um, it, it, I think it tells a better story. I think it's more, despite the fact that it's about werewolves, I think it's more of a humanist story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fight to stay human, and, and by stay human, I mean not be a dickhead and not be, oh, here's your fire scene. It, well, here's the other thing about this. When you, when you talk about this in this movie and its edge, um, I think for an early 80s horror movie, not call it slasher, not whatever else. The how do I say this without sounding like a complete pervert? <laughs> the fact that there was the fact that there was so much bush in this movie was ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and but I also think it's a piece of why in the following years we were able to get things like Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds because I think movies like this normalized it, you know, and didn't make it so forbidden. Yeah, I can definitely see that because uh, you know we did have the uh, the the splurge of uh, or, or or renaissance really of the uh, sex romps. I guess would be the best way to uh, to put that genre uh, in particular. Um, so getting back to the colony, uh, you know we we had the uh, interesting uh, werewolf sex scene, you know by the by the fire, <laughs> and then you know that was another thing like with uh, budget restraints. You know there were definitely like some animated portions of that that were like kind of like thrown in. So like at one point it's like all right, like well what are we actually watching here? Because like there really aren't too many like really sexy werewolf scenes. Uh, just across the genre, because, like, I, I think really the only ones that come to mind, and really there's only, like, two that I could actually think of, uh, was one that we had talked about during Twisted Tuesday, and that was the uh, female transformation scene in Trick or Treat, uh, which is also kind of, like, bait, like set in an orgy, I guess would be one way to describe it, uh, where it's just, like, the undressing to reveal the, the, the werewolf underneath. Absolutely fantastic, and really... Just female transformations when it comes to werewolves completely uh, not utilized all that often in the genre. So definitely need more representation there. Uh, The other one was Wolf Cop also has some she-wolf scenes (laughs) as well. But like outside of that, there's just not a whole lot. But I just I I laugh every time I watch the Howlin' and we see the aftermath uh, because, you know, we see... Uh, Bill, uh, getting dressed, and you can just see all of the mall marks on his back from that scene in particular. And of course, you know, Karen sees this, <laughs> and she's like, you know, just uh, you know, asserting that you know these scratches are new, and accuses him of you know sleeping around with Marsha, who of course, as uh, everyone knows her around the colony, is an infomaniac. Yes, they literally. Say it in the in the town meet and greet on the beach party. They say it. Yeah, she's an infam- like then they say it. She's an infomaniac. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, that's how again, we identify her. <laughs> again, there's being there's being that spoon fed the narrative thing. That's just like, oh, yep, okay. Well, it's like I I took one look at her and I figured she was the town info. So it's like <laughs> I, I, I didn't need it again. But 
but yeah, and uh, but but as they go forward with that, um, that's a little piece of D. Wallace's character with that little bit of uh, naivete, call it, where mm-hmm. it's just like, no, I was just attacked by a wolf again, you know, because like she had literally just picked him up off the front stairs and brought him inside, taken him to the doctor and wrapped him up after being attacked the first time. <laughs> so it's like. Like, come on, how many times are you going to fall for the same, you know, attacked by a wolf once? Okay, yeah, but the, twice, you know, you're not going to fool me with that. Yeah, let alone by a different wolf. You mean oh, to exactly. tell me there's more than one out there? It, I mean, you have better odds of getting struck by lightning twice than getting attacked uh, by two pretty, werewolves. Pretty much, <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and coming, back to the, coming back to the cabin, though, where he's just like, you know, ha- after having been bit the first time, and he just, like, he has this he has this weird glow to him where mm-hmm. he's just like he's just like <clears throat> and he's just like kind of ready to go, you know. And then we have um Chris's love interest, you know, who is just kind of spending her time just kind of snooping around and just kind of checking things out and doing whatever else. And I think a, a lot of what she does, you know, when she, you know, pulls out her pictures and she's looking and she finally finds that picture of the cove. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, shit, I'm here. I'm here. And this is uh, maybe not the best thing ever, you know? And the story kind of, like, from that point, I think the story really starts to, like, snowball hard. And, like, we finally get into that second half of the movie where it's like, now we're going to bring the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of, like, added on to the trauma for Karen, of course, uh, after seeing all of the claw marks on Bill's back. Bill does not respond too kindly to that. Actually, backhands her uh, across the face. And, of course, that causes Karen to basically, like, storm off out of the cabin. And that's when she heads over to, like, the doctor's office. Uh, and, you know, that's when she runs into Eddie, who is back in his human form. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's basically just wanting to finish, you know, what they started back in uh, L.A., that's when we got, you know, the slow process of the transformation back into a werewolf. And, you know, that this scene in particular is is always a standout to me because I, I love when transformation scenes are slow. They're methodical. You get to see them slowly, like, play out. And, you know, you you see like the snout slowly inching forward and you see you know the teeth starting to come in and it's just absolutely fantastic and you know it it goes back to the days of practical effects because it like i remember so like so many times they're talking about like them wanting to remake american werewolf in london i'm like i don't care who they attach with i don't care if it's landis's son like it that that movie or I mean, really, both of these movies, like these transformation sequences stand the test of time. Like there is no way for you to replicate them. And if you try to, they're going to cut corners. They're going to use CGI and it's just not going to have the same effect. There are just too many movies nowadays that are either trying to go too heavily into the practical effects and maybe they don't have like the same level of experience that we had, like with some of these other uh, you know, gurus back in the 1980s for special effects, you know, like your Tom Savini's or, or your uh, your your Botans or Bakers in this case. Um, but, 
you know, there, there's a way to combine the two and make it look good, but then there, there are just so many examples where, you know, they're overly reliant on CGI and things just look absolutely awful. I mean, the Thing uh, remake definitely comes to mind in that regard, which is like, you know, you, you have a movie that is put on a pedestal for a, a number of different reasons, especially re regarding the special effects, and then when you see the end result to, like, what they were trying to do with CGI, it's just like, no, it just looks so far out of place, but the Howlin' and American Werewolf in London, sure, they have, like, similar bases because of, uh, you know, Rick Baker's involvement in both projects. But just the fact that, you know, we can be 40 years down the line still talking about this movie and just how amazing the special effects are, you know, really speaks a lot about the work that was put into the prosthetics and everything. Well, they always talk about the necessity of being the mother of all invention, right? I mean, and and to think that somebody said, well, hey, wait a minute. How about if I took this and I put all the hair into it? And we talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating because it's such an awesome effect. And we're just going to pull it through backwards, you know, but then we're going to run the film in reverse so it looks like it's coming out. And it is so... It is so well done. It's so profound, and it comes across so well on the screen. Um, I think you know that I'm I'm also a member of the nightclub, and we just we just talked about a movie very recently, uh, 2004's Dawn of the Dead, mm -hmm. and 2004's Dawn of the Dead used almost exclusively practical effects, and and for a movie done in 2004, that's something pretty profound, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this 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 movie is another one of those ones where they use everything to their advantage they make do with in a lot of cases what they had to work with um but i think a lot of times that's what creates the best effects um sometimes sometimes honestly you can just spill too much blood on something to cover up whatever you don't want people to see and i'm totally fine with that i'm totally fine with that and just the creativity that they showed in this and the different things that they did because there's there's a small I don't want to call it a documentary, but call it a small making of that you can find about this movie where they talk about some of the effects that they did and how they did some of them. The backwards hair pull is just one of them. Um, they talk about this movie. I, I believe they talk about it at least once in, in search of darkness where they talk about again, the effects, um, the whole movie, this, this small town that they make. And, and to your point about all the bone relics and all the other things that they find, I mean, they use things that honestly, going into some of the offices, they make shit out of like sticks and spit, but it's, but it's awesome. And it comes across on screen. Great. It gives you that feeling of you're a person who's from the city. You're in the woods. You're in a completely different environment. You see things that you're not normally going to see. So uh, for the most part, if it's not something that's made of brick or concrete and you see it, you're never going to say, Oh God, that was a, half-ass put together special effect you're gonna say oh my god what the fuck is this it must be part of this whole cult thing and it's just spectacular i i think you said it it's like when you when you try to there is a very cordial mix of practical and cgi but it's got to be done just right mm -hmm. otherwise both stick out as shit they just both stick out as just crap and there's a hundred movies i could point to that did not do things right um this definitely is a movie that did things right. Like I said, Dawn of the Dead 04 did 
did things right. Um, but I think, and maybe to your point about budgets and studios and especially studio interference and, you know, get it done faster and get it done, you know, by this deadline. We have to put it out and let's see the final cut. It's, this was back in a time where I think people that did special effects probably had more time, probably had maybe not a ton of resources specifically in terms of money and things like that, but they had a lot of resources in terms of knowledge and they, and they use them to their advantage. Um, and this movie is one that definitely highlights that. Yeah, and I mean, it was too just the fact that, you know, there were a lot of mentorships when it came to uh, these special effects artists at the time. You know, it was a very tight-knit uh, community uh, where, you know, you didn't just have, like, one person doing everything. You did have assistance uh, as well across the board, which uh, definitely helped aid into that. But, you know... Because of budget restraints, obviously, you know, there were times where, you know, you have to MacGyver it. If it's not glued to the ground, you're putting it to use. (laughs) Uh, Where where nowadays, it's just like so many filmmakers are, you know, afraid to go the practical route. And I don't know if it's it's more of like a budget issue or if it's more so them maybe not wanting to spend the time. Or, like, find someone suitable for, like, that sort of job. Uh, But, like, obviously, like, we've seen uh, a couple of filmmakers, uh, like, really just grab the bull by the horns. You know, you know, we talk about the success of Terrifier. All of that, all the special effects on that are all done (laughs) by the director, which is absolutely fucking bonkers to me still. Like, it's just, like... The, some of the shit they pull in those movies, I mean, I'm not going to say they all work, but when there's a will, there's a way. And it really shines through in, in those sort of uh, situations. But, you know, I, I'm still just absolutely amazed by what they were able to put together in the time that they did. And to, like, get this movie done in 28 days is no laughing matter because we have seen some quick shoots. But more times than not, like, there are a couple of months. They're not less than a month like the Howlin' was. Well, yeah, and I think when it comes to special effects, I mean, I, I honestly think in this day and age, and like you use Terrifier, Terrifier 2, Damien Leone as an example, um, I think it's skills. Mm-hmm. I think I think CGI has taken the skills out of effects, right? Um, I don't know that people people have the wherewithal to use a dime store bottle of latex and some toilet paper and make something awesome anymore. I don't think they have the skills to do it. Um, movies like The Howling, definitely movies like Terrifier, Terrifier 2. Again, using what you had, and to your point, if it's not glued to the floor, fuck it, it's going to be a special effect. I'm going to use it somehow, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the, I think that's the beauty of these movies is maybe the effect wasn't 100% perfect, Let's just say that because there's some effects in this movie that are not 100% perfect, but the way they translate on screen, the way that you know somebody put a ton of work and a ton of love into them is something for me as a horror fan that I appreciate a lot more than the best CGI that anybody can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there, there's plenty of ways to like in regards to like rounded the edges in regards to the makeup or, you know, maybe you change the line a little bit in order to uh, mask some of the faults that, uh, you know, there may be, or just changing the camera angle. You know, th- there are other ways to, like, go go around it, but, you know, there are definitely some filmmakers that are like, all right, this is what we're doing, like, 
however it looks, it's just how it's going to be. Uh, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed, like, kind of, like, the bubbling aspect of the transformation, especially when we are introduced to, like, the, uh, <laughs> the sulfuric acid getting thrown onto uh, Eddie to... To stop the uh, the transformation at at this point, and that's when you know we see, uh, you know, D Wallace, you know, running out of the cabin trying to you know make her grand escape, uh, only to be captured by the other <laughs> werewolves. Unfortunately for her, uh, and she is taken back to the barn, uh, which you know is essentially like the ritual center, uh, you know, for the the colony. Yeah. Absolutely. I need a timeout because this old man's got to take a piss. I'll be right back. <laughs> all happens right. when you get older. You'll get there. I mean, we're we're all slowly starting to get there. Except Wood. Wood's not there yet. But, uh, you know, give him another nine or ten years and uh, it'll sneak up on him eventually at that point in time. Uh, but yeah, so we are back at the uh, at the barn here, uh, which is the ritual center, as I was saying. Uh, and that is when Karen is learning that, uh, you know, she is also a werewolf. Which uh, definitely comes into play when we get to the end of the film, but we are not quite there yet. Uh, so we, we know at this point that her husband Bill has sided with the werewolves. Uh, and, you know, of course, we do see the nymphomaniac, which, of course, is Marsha, uh, Probably informing to Karen that he is one of us now. Uh, so, you know, already, you know, there there's a huge numbers game. Uh, there's also, like, kind of that divide in regards to uh, the werewolves in this colony, where, you know, some of them are trying to be a little bit more traditional. Others are wanting to play more of the role as a hunter. They just want to go out, kill humans. The other aspect of it is uh, trying to kind of like stay in the shadows a little bit uh, to not really put themselves in a dangerous position because they don't really want to be known. Uh, and, you know, we kind of see that in a couple of different subgenres as well. Uh, we do see that uh, play out a little bit in vampire flicks in particular, where, you know, you do have that divide between wanting to stay traditional or just wanting to just play the role of the hunter and bring back any human you can to completely suck them dry at this point in time. But... Uh, I was just talking about uh, Grindhouse, how, like, there's kind of, like, a divide with the colony and how they want to go about hunting humans. Well, it does seem like in this movie that going back to the first meet and greet at the beach, um, where you've got the guy that I've labeled Crazy Ralph, who just, you know, wants to end it. Um, and it almost feels like sort of a divide between the young and the old where the old have kind of had it with the young and now the younger they're trying to bring in these, these fresh faces and mm -hmm. right. And with Karen and bill they're they're sort of well-known, you know, because, you know, she's the, the news anchor and it does seem like they want to like the young are pushing to spread the message and the older ones are pushing to sort of keep the group tight and close and mm -hmm. maybe not spread out quite so far. Um, so, yeah, I think there's I, I don't think it's a new dichotomy in a lot of, um, say, creature feature horror movies, especially when you have big groups of something. Um, definitely you see it in vampire movies where 
the younger ones want to reach out. They want to go out into the daylight. They want to take <laughs> over and kill the humans. And the older ones are always like, you know what? Let's throttle back and just do what we've been doing. <laughs> this is how we've working. done it for 300 years. <laughs> oh, exactly. So it's it's not a it's not a, a really a new dichotomy. And it's interesting that even in 1981, they were sort of, you know, pushing that narrative, mm-hmm. you know, of, you know, the younger ones are kind of the future. But in an odd way, it's strange because. It, it, when you have something like a werewolf or a vampire, the old ones don't die off because they're old. They're just the older ones, mm. you know? So, like, it isn't like society where one generation kind of goes away and the next generation takes over. They have to work side by side, and you see the, the, the struggles that it causes and all the, all the tribulation that builds up in, in the group, and you definitely see that with this colony. Mm-hmm. All right, so after this point, when uh, we learn that... Uh... <laughs> Karen is a werewolf. Uh, Marsha basically just outright stated that uh, you know Bill is one of us now. At this point, uh, we are heading back to uh, Wagner's office, uh, where we find like the tape recorder, uh, which is basically playing the tape of uh, Eddie, who is killing Terry. Uh, that's when, of course, Eddie walks into the room. We see that uh, you know he's got all of the chemical burns on his body. Uh, but, you know, outside of that, he seems to be doing okay. Uh, but, you know, I mean, as best as you can be, really. I mean, uh, having an acid bath, probably not the best feeling thing, regardless of uh, if you are, are a werewolf or otherwise. But, uh, you know, I guess, like, with werewolves and the transformation, uh, body is definitely more intact than, you know, if you were just an outright human in this case. Because, uh, you know, obviously there wouldn't be that much left. You'd be bare to the bone at, at that point in time. Um, I'm trying to remember... I think well, unless, this... you have, unless you have regenerative powers, which a werewolf does. <laughs> yeah. So, the humans do unless, not... there's, unless there's silver in your acid, I think you're you're, you're pretty much going to come back. It might take a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Might take You might want to stay out of the sun for a few days. But uh, all in all, I think you'll, you'll come back. And of course, here in uh, the tape playing back, Eddie is just like really proud of his work. He's glued into everyone, really, about his handiwork. Uh, and he ends up taunting Chris into uh, basically shooting him. <laughs> it's just like, uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you have Eddie there, and he's got he's burnt down to his stump, and then you got everyone's kind of gathered in the barn, and they're it's uh, this. I think is where the whole the, the cult thing sort of comes to its culmination, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, and then uh, what's his face? Wagner gets the big scratch across the face. I mean, it's just. There are so many things that happen here so fast with so many characters, it's almost hard to keep up. Mm. Um, but then you have, like you said, your pal Chris, who's sneaking in, and he he's he's fresh out of the uh, whatever shop he was in where he literally bought a wooden box full of what looks to me like 30-06 silver bullets. <laughs> it's like, it's still amazing that someone just had that laying around. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty sure my local gun shop does not have... Well, no, I take that back. My local my local gun shop actually does have silver bullets you can buy, but they're really expensive. They're really expensive. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and he's just kind of doing his little investigation, and then, you know, we get to that point, and here's where he's goading Eddie, mm-hmm. and he's like, come on, do something. <laughs> and it's uh, between the tape recorder, the juxtaposition of the tape recorder with the blood all over the buttons, and then Eddie and all of his burns, and it's like, 
it's almost one of those things where you look at it and it's like, like, I don't know how Chris keeps it together. Like, I, like if, if I were to see that, I'd be like, I don't, like, I, I, like no, I'm just going to get my get back in my car and go. No, mm. like, I don't need any of this shit, <laughs> like, at all. No, it's a great fucking scene. And he actually gives him his gun back. He just goes, here you go. You can have your <laughs> gun back. And it's like, well, yeah. Not, not realizing, of course, that the rifle is loaded with these mystical silver bullets. Um, probably the one thing that's always... I mean, and a lot of werewolf movies, not, not a lot, a, a, a great number of them do this, where they, they, make, they make the silver bullets sort of mystical, you know? Mm. Like it's this, it's this super hard to find, um, you know, it's, it's almost magical in its properties. I mean, the, the reality is here, in my house, I have everything I need to make silver bullets including the silver if I wanted to, you know, I have the molds. I have, every, I, I could make them if I wanted to. So for me, it's a little, it's a little unbelievable, but I still sort of love the mystical power that they have. Like they're the demon killer, right? I mean, it's every, every monster movie. If you have that one magical thing that kills them, it's like, it's, it's that, but like, I'm, I'm a gun enthusiast. So it seems like such a simple thing, but I love the magical power that it holds in these movies. I love it. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so used to just seeing uh, the handiwork being put into crafting the bullets in, in these movies. You know, it's not just like going to like the bookstore, like in the cult shop and just like having them at the ready to, uh, you know, to basically distract yourself uh, in this case. Uh, but, you know, as as we were saying, like Chris just opens fire, uh, you know, using the silver bullet. And that's when we see Eddie's throat uh, basically like explode. And we see like this gush of blood. Uh pouring out as he just falls over dead great particular scene uh and that's when we see uh karen and the other werewolves are beginning to uh, file out of the barn uh you know we see tc start to transform uh and you know chris at this point is just turkey shooting at this point really just shooting everyone with his rifle uh, you know, telling everyone like, hey, like I, I, I'm actually armed with silver bullets. You know, you, you know, you gotta like add a little bit of commotion to it. You know, get them uh, riled up a bit, and also like let them know like, hey, like you are in imminent danger if you are within the you know general vicinity uh, at at this point in time. Uh, yeah, and definitely has that. If I don't know you, I'm shooting you. Mm-hmm. That that's just it doesn't even matter. If it, like, I, I would hate to be his Uber driver because he probably didn't know me. He'd probably shoot me. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and and of course, you know, you also have Jerry who just does not believe a single thing that Chris is saying. <laughs> you know, too. So it's like, well, why, why, why wouldn't you believe him? You know, like, are are you really willing to like call someone's bluff in a life or death situation? <laughs> Well, and at this point, if you haven't seen enough where you're at least like, hmm, mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> if, if you're not at least at a solid maybe by now, you just aren't paying attention. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, and then the, the barn scene as as he comes out and they, they well, he pushes with his rifle. He basically pushes all the wolves back into the barn, locks the door. And then he and Karen go around the edge of pouring the gasoline and then they torch the barn and you have all the all the wolves inside transforming, but also trying to sort of break their way out of this burning barn. Um, to me, 
honestly just a great scene because it just gets down to it's a very basic like survival mm-hmm. scene you know and they have the, the shot of wagner on the ground just dead and all the wolves are kind of howling and they're all just like you know our our king is dead and it's just um then as they hop into the car and things just the car scene is on <laughs> this car scene honestly for me is maybe one of the more it's call it what it is ludicrous scenes in this whole thing um and for all the times that he shoots through the window he shoots through the roof the car stalls and it won't start all these mm-hmm. other things happen it's it's just ludicrous and it's depending on my mood i sort of kind of, sort of go back and forth on what's going on um but then they encounter that sheriff and the sheriff is just like shooting at the car and doing whatever else and it's like like there's a little piece of me. It's because like, he slams on the brakes and stops. And it's like, there's this voice in my head that goes, have we learned nothing? Like, <laughs> have we literally learned nothing? Um, so once the sheriff is down and they get back on the road and then there's a wolf on top and, and the wolf is in there and, you know, they steal the cop car. They're taken off out of town their car explodes for no reason. I don't get that exactly, <laughs> but they're, but I mean, Hey, you know, why not? It, it, at that point, the car's full of bullet holes and whatever else is probably not running anyway. So why not blow it up? Yeah. But as the, as the car is being surrounded again, going back to the practical effects things, the wolves are super effective. They are super effective. Just the, there's a couple of scenes in here that feel a little, a little Cujo even though this was before that, but there's definitely a little bit of Cujo esque the, the dog barking at the window. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the scratching of the glass. I think the scratching of the glass was something that already always got me like, like how sharp and hard do your nails have to be to, to not break, but leave scratch marks in glass. I mean, that's honestly super awesome. and just gives, you know, gives you a little bit of the, a little bit of the weevil wobbles in your, you know, down in your, in your butt parts. It's just awesome. But then as they take off and head to town, and then, lo and behold, <laughs> we didn't quite get them all. Nope, unfortunately not. Uh, so at this point, you know, Karen's just like, all right, you know, we need to let the world know uh, that, you know, there are actually monsters out there. So, you know, we, we kind of like have like that final fate type moment where she goes on broadcast uh, with Channel 6 News. Uh, and of course, you know, like they're expecting her to read off the teleprompt and, you know, go directly off the script. Uh, well, she did go off script, just not off of their script uh, in this case. Uh, so, you know, this is basically just like a special like worldwide broadcast announcement uh, that, that she is doing in this case. And, you know, her and Chris both have something planned for this. But, uh, you know, Chris is kind of like wary of like the actual strategy that they put in place here. Uh, and, you know, he asked Karen, like, whether or not she's sure if she wants to do this. Uh, and, you know, I, I think part of that was, like, too, because, like, he wasn't sure whether or not, like, she was going to be able to, like, keep her composure uh, based on, like, what her condition was at that time. Because, like, you know, she's still, like, a newer werewolf, you know? So, like, who's to say, like, she would be able to turn on command, uh, you know, when, you know, the lights and the cameras are on at this point in time since, you know, it is a live recording. 
Yeah, see, I think, and I, I've thought a lot about this, and I think this last scene actually comes from, I feel like it comes from something that actually happened in real life. Um, as far as the news broadcast thing and the, you know, trying to bring the horror of things to the real world. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to, I think it was 19, hang on. 1974. I think it was 1974. Uh, Christine Chubbuck. Do you know who that is? No. Um, well, she was a brunette, so watch out. <laughs> um, but she was a news anchor, and um, she did a lot of pieces for her station. And one of the things that she talked about was depression quite frequently. Um, and so to highlight the effects of depression on people, she committed suicide live on TV. Okay. She literally pulled out a gun and on. And so I, this scene, like that's what this, this reminds me of. Like, I think it's it, somebody going out of their way to expose the horror of something. Um, I, I really think that's where that, that was like probably the motivation for this. Um, and, and if it was, I mean, you know, a good, good for them for using something that was like so horrific and so real. Um, at the same time, good for them for not actually pointing it out because that's kind of a terrible thing. But I think that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. no. okay. So, uh, so when she's like delivering this piece on the air, Karen's basically uh, letting the world know, like, hey, you know, there are secret societies out there in the world uh, that are harboring creatures that are neither man nor animal. Uh, and you know, with that, you know, we we see her. Uh, transform into a werewolf live on television. Uh, and, you know, once the transformation is complete, uh, we see, you know, Chris, uh, who is, you know, kind of like sitting out of the camera's range at this point. Uh, you know, he still has his rifle and uh, unfortunately shoots her with a silver bullet, uh, which kills uh, Karen instantly. Uh, and that's when... Uh, you know, the station manager uh, wants to, like, immediately cut to a commercial, you know, like, it's not like a, you know, quick standby, no, we're, we're just gonna cut the feed at this point in time. Uh, and, you know, like, I, I feel like in, like, news today, they probably would have cut before that even happened, <laughs> you know? As soon as someone is oh. going off script, no, they are switching immediately. Because you have no idea uh, where where things are going to end up nowadays. Oh, I think you're right. I think the, the funniest part of this movie is when they finally do a cut, they cut to a dog food commercial, mm -hmm. which I think is just awesome. And they have all these quick shots of people that are watching this. And there's a set of kids. Um, that There's like uh, the guy from the <clears throat> the weird antiquities shop where he got the silver bullets. He's watching. Uh, there's a guy from the bar earlier in the whole thing is watching and they cut to the very, very end. And there's a, a whole bunch of guys just uh, sitting at a bar just going, oh, yeah, what a bunch of bullshit. It's a media prank and whatever else. And then they swing over to this like, what are you having, lady? She's like, I'll have a hamburger rare. And it's Marsha. <laughs> it's uh, I mean, let's call it what it is. It's the wait for part two moment. It mm -hmm. totally is. But it's still great. And they have this weird, the whole end of it is this weird close-up of a hamburger fried. And I don't know why. For some reason, for me, it is so goddamn off-putting. It's ridiculous. It's because it, it doesn't actually cook. Like, the burger basically falls apart. 
pretty much. The first layer comes off, and then they flip it over, and there's just some guy with this. Like, and I, I you know what? I'm, I'll call myself an amateur griller. I'll tell you what: you never squish the meat. You mm-hmm. never squish the meat. You just, you just let it rise as it's going to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. I mean, this movie. Uh, for 1981, crazy as hell, super well done, super poignant, even even coming up to today and, and today's current subjects in the world and things that are happening between people that are having any kind of any kind of uh, mental health problems, social problems, whatever else. It it's it's talking about a whole bunch of things that are relevant today, up to and up to and including needed to be included in something like a cult just so you feel like you're belonging to something right mm-hmm. um so it, it 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 takes it takes social conventions and it sort of turns them on its ear and uh makes them through the eyes of a werewolf uh, pretty easy to talk about absolutely uh so uh with that being said again uh next week we have dog soldiers uh which you had mentioned is going to be a first time watch for you uh which is great because like i i would say like first time watches at least on the podcast have been extremely rare i can only remember like a a handful of times where that's been the case and you know that that was included uh even with john and holly uh, where it's maybe only happened like maybe five, maybe six times across the board. And, you know, we're 114 episodes in at, at this point in time. So uh, that that just shows you that, uh, you know, like we're, we're not afraid to like venture out and, you know, find something brand new to talk about. And I'm, I'm not talking about like brand new releases either, because I'm not going to count those uh, in that particular discussion, just because like obviously we haven't seen them if they're literally just coming out. Well, but brand new is brand new is subjective. Mm-hmm. It, it always is. You know, brand new could be a movie from 1975. Right. Because if you've never seen it, it's brand new to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you've heard it talked about, whatever else. But I think that's the the good and the bad part of horror. People that love horror are people that tend to get deep, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to see a lot of things. I mean, there's a small handful of horror movies I haven't seen. There's 475 million rom-coms I haven't seen because <laughs> they're not my thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's some good ones. That's true. Um, but the odds of a seeing it are slim and, and B finding a gem are even slimmer. Right. Um, and I think for the most part, uh, with handle was scared. I mean, gems tend to rise to the top and it, it tends to be the things we talk about. Um, which is, uh, a, a piece of what makes it really fun, but at the same time, it gets to spread, I think, to people that maybe, like, people that think that, like, the Scream series are gems. Mm-hmm. Now, are they good and are they fun? Yeah, they are definitely fun. The last two Scream movies, I was super surprised. But Scream 2, 3, 4? Not so much. You know? So, uh, but... Uh, I'm never going to tell anybody what to like or what not to like. Um, I just know what I like. And mm-hmm. something like The Howling, I, I think you said it perfectly. It stands the test of time. It really does. From its effects to its characters to its story, it stands the test of time. And that's what makes it fun. You know, I mean, because I, I, I think I think we've actually talked about this on Handle with Scare before. Horror is one of those things that it has such a dedicated fan base that there are people 
somewhere in the slums of Chicago, some people somewhere in the northern parts of Minnesota that have a cell phone and a case of beer. And I'll tell you what, they're making a movie. Mm. And horror, I think, is the only genre where that happens. You know, nobody's making low budget rom coms because who the fuck is going to watch that shit? You know, <laughs> um, but but I think that's the beauty of it, too. And, you know, as we keep going, um, I, I've discovered very recently a, a group um, that makes what I would call low budget horror movies, mm. but makes them um, with a passion that is absolutely palpable and um, makes them. And this is the best part with their fans and for their fans. Um, so it, anybody who ever wants to find some really, really cool horror, um, go and find a group called DBS Films. They are an awesome group. They make the movies that we love. They make, that's what they do is they make the movies that we love. Characters that are fun, stories that are fun. Maybe the effects and things are not top-notch, but so what? Who cares? You know, I mean, I just want people to keep making horror movies. If I could make a horror movie, if I had the, well, the energy and the money, <laughs> I, I would, I would try, um, you know, and, but it would come off as me murdering, murdering a Glenn in his apartment. And that just wouldn't be fun. So <laughs> I just, I just wouldn't be fun. But, but I mean, so, so horror, I think for the people that love horror, it's a lot of what keeps us going. So it's, it's super fun. Um, and it's always fun for me to look back on movies of a certain vintage and go, wow, just wow. Mm-hmm. Um, the Howling is one of those movies. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it really says a lot, too, when, you know, you think back to just how many great horror movies came out in the in the 80s. And, you know, this is one that you're constantly circling back to, despite how many countless fantastic movies there are within like that, you know, 10 year period. Well, and, and we talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, things like, uh, well, the howling, obviously, um, things like Amityville. Sometimes there is, there is this seed of awesomeness that people feed on forever. Now the howling is not quite to Amityville's level. <laughs> And I believe we said 41. 41 <laughs> yeah, it was Amity, 41. <laughs> um, but I think the Howling's got to be pushing 10, you know? Um, so for for that for, for, for the IP to keep going that long, it says something about the movies, and it says something about people's love of creature features, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's totally... I'm completely down with that. I'm, I'm still hoping for more um, of the living deads and of the dead. I'm still hoping for more of both of those. Will I get some in my lifetime? I don't know, but I, I hope so. But, you know, being the guy who was called Grindhouse Zombie, I have to just keep my fingers crossed. That's just how it works, man. Right. You know? um, yeah, but I, I, so, I mean, The Howling, um, if you haven't seen it, um, it's, um, it's quintessential and instructional horror from the 80s. It really is. Yep, and it's um, a, uh, available to stream on Shudder. As well as a couple of other werewolf movies that they recently updated here, uh, you know, within the past week or so. <clears throat> uh, but yeah, so also like just f- f- in case people are wondering, you know, like be- before, uh, you know, I, I we I brought you back on the show to like 
have like a permanent spot you know we were kind of like talking about like things that we could do and you know we just like did the Amityville horror episode and we're, we were just like spitballing ideas and you know one of the things that we were talking about was like maybe doing a franchise deep dive and I'm just like I don't know if Amityville would be like the right choice for that because like I feel like I would lose what little sanity I have left uh, because like I know like 95% of them are probably just gonna be so awful that I would not be able to differentiate between any of them outside of, like, Amityville in space, which I didn't think was terrible, but that's not to say the other 38 aren't going to be. Well, I think it's one of those things, to be honest, if you're if you're going to, because there are 41 movies, there are 41 movies, um, I think I think you could spread it out a little bit, you know, yeah. and, and give it and have it have it. Uh, have it be just the little sugar cube at the end of the trail. If you, mm -hmm. if you were feeling like doing something a little extra um, or any, any, any month that had an extra Tuesday in it, you just go, it's Amityville Tuesday, <laughs> you know, and just be, and, and, and it might take you 16 years to get through it. But, but so what, you know, um, I, something I think that prolific probably almost deserves a little, you know, like, okay, a little mm -hmm. bit of love. I mean, that's, for an IP, that's it's pretty impressive to have 41 different extractions of the movie based on what the first one was. Because the first the first Amityville, um, coming from a place where it was loosely based on a true story, mm. um, you know, the DeFeo family, um, it, it's it's honestly pretty impressive that it got that many entries. I mean, if you look at the rest of them, I think, I mean, what's What's second place? Probably second place is probably Puppet Master. Um, third place is probably Halloween. Second place is or or fourth, third, whatever, whatever the next place is, <laughs> is probably Friday the Thirteenth. Mm -hmm. So I mean, for the the horror genres that we know and love, Amityville's fucking winning, man. <laughs> I mean, they're just, and yeah, I mean, maybe they didn't spend more than five grand making the last thirty movies, but <laughs> so what? It's still kind of awesome. You know, being a horror fan, it's just still kind of awesome. Yep, I, I just know that uh, if I do venture off into, like, a side project, that by the time I get around to it, there will already be, like, another 19 entries, and then it's just going to be, like, a like a constant cycle where I'm just going to be falling behind time and time again because I keep churning them out one after the other. <laughs> But uh, but who knows? I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm not saying it is happening, but it's definitely an idea that we have entertained. And even if it's just something I like throw on YouTube for like a five, ten minute video or whatever, you know, there's also that possibility. But uh, but all in all, you know, it's it's really interesting to see, uh, you know, re regardless of how well known or like how successful the first movie is, you can churn out countless number of uh, of sequels or movies that literally have nothing to do with the original at all and which also does happen in some of the howland sequels uh much like it does in amityville definitely definitely <laughs> the howling is, i think i think the howling has got i want to say eight seven or eight sequels i think um so yeah but again back to the you know it, it's the ip and if someone's not watching it the dates expire and anybody can grab it. And it's, it's it, when people do, it's either great, which it seldom is. I mean, let's be honest, or um, it's a piece of crap. And, but 
it, it goes back to horror and the reality of I just want people to keep making it, so I almost don't care. Because mm-hmm. I'll watch. I, I've seen every Puppet Master, and I'll tell you what, no one is ever going to tire me of Blade ever, ever. Okay. Oh, I, I don't have. I don't have his hat on. <laughs> oh, you. Uh, oh, oh, where's his hat? Oh, yeah. See, it's if, if, it's uh it's on the bed. I can't reach it. <laughs> if. If Blade showed up at my house, I would give him a dish of food and water and be like, oh, what do you need, little buddy? What do you, need? <laughs> you know, I, mm-hmm. he probably needs a whetstone, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I would give him whatever he needed. Absolutely. All right. So with that being said, again, guys, next week we have Dog Soldiers. Uh, that's going to be a fun one to revisit. I don't think I've watched that since I saw it in theaters. Uh, so it's been, you know, like 20 plus years. Oh, my God. That's uh. Well, and I have never seen it, so I'm going to come in here either like this mm-hmm. or like <laughs> it's, there's not going to be any in between. <laughs> that is exactly how it needs to be. Uh, so I guess that will do it for us here tonight. So Grindhouse, thank you again for, uh, you know, being on the show. It'll be good to have you on every week. Uh, I mean, you were definitely yeah. the person who had been on the show the most outside of, you know, our you know regular rotation. So. Good to have I you just, here on a more weekly basis. I, I love the chats, bud. You know that. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just fun to do this. It's fun to break this shit down. And I think the most the, probably the most fun part of doing this is getting the different perspectives because mm-hmm. I always learn something. And that's the part that I feel like the, the shit that gets me to think. Mm-hmm. And it's like 90 percent of the time it makes me love a movie more. There's a few. Well, hell, even bodies, bodies, bodies. You guys got me to like that one. <laughs> by the end. So it was like and I was pissed that you got me to like that movie by the end. Um, but, you know, so but 90 percent of the time, yeah, it's like I, I love a movie even more. So, I mean, why not? Mm-hmm. Just why the hell not? Absolutely. So, again, guys, uh, just a general reminder, we are streaming every Tuesday on kick at kick dot com slash normally drunk uh, for Twisted Tuesday. Uh, so next Tuesday, we got Dog Soldiers, which, of course, we record the new episode on Wednesday. How about the movie stream every Tuesday, 730 p.m. Pacific time? And then the podcast recording would be the following day on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific time uh, with the audio format of the show being up on Thursday mornings. With that being said, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Kick for Handle with Scare. This has been episode number 114, talking all about the howling 1981. I've been your host, Simply Drunk, joined by Grindhouse Zombie, and we will see you guys back next week for Dog Soldiers. You guys take care and have a good night. <laughs>